Michael Myers Minute. Where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Minute 29 begins right at the tail end of the scene in Lori's bedroom. Lori, this is ridiculous. And we insert the third and final scene shot for television in 91. It is uh, 3 minutes 30 seconds long. We see the Strode living room, filmed at 1428 North Genesee Avenue in Hollywood. The exterior of this house, but not this interior, was Nancy's house in A Nightmare on Elm Street. They've got a strangely large horse statue at one end of the room, and a lot of plants. Too many plants. A suspicious number of plants. Lori enters the living room in a robe, her hair wrapped in a towel. This is because Jamie Lee Curtis had shorter hair, the same reason she wears a wig in Halloween 2. The doorbell rings. Lori hesitates before going slowly to the door. Lori, hi. Linda, hurry up, hurry up. Lori, what's wrong? Linda rushes inside. Linda, shut the door, shut the door. Linda goes to the window to the right of the front door and looks out. Lori looks out the window to the left. Linda, some guy is following me. Lori, are you sure? Linda, yeah, I'm sure. I think it's a guy that passed us in the street in that station wagon. Linda moves over behind Lori. Linda, I couldn't see him very well, but I think it's Steve Todd. His brother has a station wagon. Which is Linda being brilliant, of course. But I'm going to interrupt the script parts here because I find it odd. It's 1981. They've written Halloween 2. They're establishing Carpenter's written the script for Halloween 2, even though he did it while drinking. He still knows what's in it, right? They know now that Lori is going to be established as Michael's sister. She's the target. She's the one he's stalking. It's not all of this fate randomness stuff from the first film. Why is he following Linda at all? I mean, arguably he kills Linda later because he's trying to create a whole thing for... That Actually, that's an interesting question. Forget my notes. I'm just going to run with it. Michael is there. Forget the fate. Forget the random. Forget the destiny and death and force of nature stuff he's there to kill his little sister because he killed the older sister and the cult of thorn tells him he has to he's got to sacrifice his family so that everyone else can live however that works it's been a while since i watched halloween six so in the morning by chance he sees Lori. comes to his porch he smells her or whatever and he knows oh that's her that's cynthia i recognize her i'd recognize her smell anywhere even though she was a toddler and probably smelled like a dirty diaper the last time he saw her he sees Laurie with Tommy. He follows Tommy, apparently first, because he gets to the elementary school, or he knows where the elementary school is because he was six, and maybe he was already going there. Let's see, six years old, he's going to be in like kindergarten or first grade, maybe. So he knows where the elementary school is. So he goes there, checks out Tommy. Tommy's all put upon and bullied, and Michael feels bad for him. And it's like, yeah, I'm not going to kill this kid. I'm going to go kill someone else. How about that girl who's with it? So he goes to the high school. Got to interrupt from the editing bay because I'm... Already getting the order of scenes mixed up. And he probably spends a little time, you know, like, standing outside different windows over and over. And <laughs> I'm imagining him, like, he parks, stands by a car, waits for someone to look out the window, and no one does. Because, actually, that doesn't even make any sense. They don't have cell phones, so they're all looking. 
looking out the window. That many windows in the classroom, students are looking out. There are a bunch of people at Haddonfield High School on October 31st, 1978, who are freaked the fuck out. They think there's this creepy guy with a mask who's been watching me. It's not just Lori. It's not just Linda or Annie. It's everybody. They're all, what is with this dude? There's probably even a few teachers who got called the cops. Well, I don't know if they call the cops. There's barely any cops, and they kind of suck. Just watch Halloween 2. They suck at their jobs. He stands around, and he eventually finds Lori, who stares at him, and tries to figure him out. He's like, hey, it's that girl from the house. It's my sister. Found her. After school, he drives after her and her friends. What motivation would he have to follow Linda over to Lori's house? Oh, actually, I have it. Okay, he's in the car, right? And in minute, was it 25 or 24? I forget which one. There's that moment I love where the girls keep walking, but the camera stays behind. He's driven around the corner. He's gone. And it's like, we're waiting for Michael to pop in the frame. Like, he parked his car and he ran around block on foot. He's going to come up behind him. Maybe that's exactly what he did. He parked the car. He's following him on foot. And then for whatever reason, all he sees is where Linda's house is. And he's like, damn it. I forgot to figure out where Cynthia lives. Interrupting from the editing bay again because apparently I completely forgot about the hedge. Michael ducks behind the hedge. He gets stuck behind that house. And he comes back out. Lori's gone, so he has to go to Linda's because she's the only one who's separated so far. He doesn't even know where Annie lives. He didn't see that part. Duh. He doesn't put the whole Keys Strode Realty thing together because he doesn't think of her as Lori Strode. He thinks of her as Cynthia Myers. He's thinking, I'll just linger over here on Montrose, South Pasadena, wait for either Linda or Annie to come outside, because they live just a couple houses apart, and then I'll follow them. Eventually, they'll lead me back to Cynthia. And he's right. So Linda comes out in this scene. This is before Annie goes to pick up Lori in the car. He had... Wait, no. This doesn't make any sense. See, this is the problem with brainstorming. All the scenes jumble together. It's the same with this movies by minute format. It's like all the minutes of the movie exist side by side. They're all in one folder on my computer, you know? And it's like I can click on any of them at any time. The order, the original order doesn't matter. So prior to this scene, literally just prior to this scene where Linda says that Michael followed her there, he was in the backyard. He was in Mr. Riddle's yard. Okay, backtrack. What he's doing, he lingers on Montrose. He waits for either Linda or Annie to come outside because he's got to follow them now that he's on foot. He's got to follow them to figure out where Lori lives, Cynthia lives. Linda comes out. He's like, I can do this. He follows her over there. Linda, you know, she's got her old smoking habit, but maybe she's not allowed to smoke in the Strode house. She's probably been scolded a few times by Lori's mother. No, one of them smokes. In this very scene I have in my notes, there is a pack of cigarettes next to the phone. Does this mean they smoke in the house? Maybe that's why they're sitting by that on that table by the phone because it's near the front door. That's where they grab them, go outside, smoke outside. Linda comes over. Ah, oh, man, I almost had it. I was going to say, Linda comes over. She's stressed from being followed, so she stops to smoke before she goes inside. But she wouldn't stop to smoke, trying to relax, and then rush inside saying, some guy's following me. Maybe she stopped to buy some beers, even though we never see that she has any. Maybe she's got just a few in her bag under those romance novels. So she stops. Michael has to stop with her. No, because then how does he get to the Riddle's backyard? Uh. 
Backtracking again. Linda walks to the Strode house. Dude's following her. She's freaking out. But she gets there and she doesn't see him because, you know, he's passed into the next yard. He's into the riddles and she's like, oh, he's gone. And then just to make sure that she lost him, she runs all the way around the block. And this block is a big block in South Pasadena. So she runs around the block. That's why she's winded. She's like, yeah, he's following me, even though she hasn't actually seen him for the entire block because he's standing in Riddle's backyard. And Lori showers really quickly in this universe. This scene doesn't make any sense. I know they added it to pad the runtime for television airings in 1981, but it doesn't work. Let's get through the scene. Lori, well, he's parked outside the school today, right outside the window. He was staring at me. Linda, Steve Todd was staring at you. See how she jumps immediately to annoying friend gear? Lori turns to face Linda. Lori, somebody was. A while ago, he was in my backyard. Also not technically true. He was in Mr. Riddle's backyard. Linda, well, maybe he just wants to date. Lori, oh, shut up. Linda, well, someone could want to date. She pauses for a moment. This is It's actually kind of cute. She's... Little joke. Lori, so what do you want? Linda. Oh, Lori, I totally have nothing to wear tonight. I was kind of hoping that uh, you'd lend me that silk blouse that you got on your birthday. The way she says it is adorable. Lori, I haven't even worn it yet. Linda, I know, but I promise I won't spill anything on it or tear it or rip it or any of those things. Lori returns her attention to out the window. See, Linda's gotten over it. She's not worried about the guy that followed her. You know, it's the 70s. Guys follow Linda all the time. You know, she's got those bows in her hair that, what is the phrase from the novel? It says, sex here. Not literally. They don't literally say that. It's putting those bows in her hair and her hair like that is advertising for sex. It's a thing. Sex is a horrible thing, but it's a 70s thing. 70s and sexist are basically synonymous. So Lori returns her attention out the window, and Linda says, Lori, stop worrying. It was Steve Todd. See, now she's not only over being freaked out about it, she's convinced it was Steve Todd. Maybe she's freaked out because she thinks Steve Todd is a f- She doesn't like Steve Todd, you know? He's unpopular. Maybe he's a nerd. He's got glass. Wait, I was going to say he's got glasses, but Bob wears glasses. Although Bob is an athlete. He's a pitcher, and he's a tight end for the Huskers. And possible valedictorian. Bob Sims is an overachiever. She likes overachievers. Meanwhile, this Steve Todd, uh, his brother owns a station wagon. (laughs) I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Ah, where'd my notes go? (laughs) The phone rings. Lori stares at it. Oh, this is where I have it in my notes. There's a pack of cigarettes, a matchbook, and an ashtray. Oh, no, there's an ashtray. Ah. So it's perfectly reasonable to smoke in the Strode house. Which, the amount of white in this living room is actually a little strange. Maybe that's why they have all the plants, though, you know, to scrub the air, clean it up, getting some breathable atmosphere going on. I'm not sure who smokes, whether it's Morgan or Pamela. It's clearly not Lori. We'll see her cough later, of course, when she takes one puff of a joint. Even though she sort of takes more than one, we just don't see it. Clever editing, but we'll get to that when it happens in a later minute. Linda, we'll answer it. It's just a phone. You talked last minute about the importance of the phone in these girls' lives, so that's actually a weird phrase to say, it's just a phone. It's again where the 1981 scene isn't quite in sync with the 78 scene. Lori moves slowly to the chair and sits down to answer the phone, and in a wonderful little move, Linda kneels behind the chair and leans over to listen. Like, it's something they do all the time. They get on the phone, one of them's on there talking, the other one's listening. 
Lori, hello. Leonard, who is it? Annie from the phone. Lori. And we cut to Annie's bedroom, which is actually in this same house as the living room. She's got a TV on her dresser. She's got a big closet. And her bed, which she's lying on, is a mess. She has been trying out different outfits for later. Annie, I have to ask a big favor. I can't find anything to wear. Lori, to Linda. It's Annie. She wants to borrow something. Linda, you promised. Lori, to Linda. No, I didn't. Into the phone. Hi, Linda's here. She wants to borrow my new blouse. There's actually some great timing considering these three actresses hadn't worked together for three years. Like all their time they spent together on the first one. That was a while ago. Annie is in one shot of Halloween 2 as the dead body. Linda is back just for this scene. They got PJ Souls back just for this. But they have a nice rapport as like annoying friends, good friends who know each other and are used to doing this sort of thing. Like Maybe they borrow stuff from Lori all the time because she has nice things, but she doesn't wear the nice things because she's too busy babysitting, too busy studying. Annie, Linda's a creep. Is that guy still creeping around your backyard? Lori, he followed Linda over here. See, that, that, that doesn't make any sense, as I already said. He couldn't have followed Linda there and been in the backyard before Linda got there. Which means, coming back to Michael's motivation, what is he doing? Why does he want all three of these girls dead already? This goes back to, like, slasher film lore outside of Halloween. Like, they're sinners. He he has really good hearing. You know, you don't know it because the film doesn't tell you, but it totally can. But he can hear really well. And from the station wagon following them, he heard their plans for tonight. Bringing Bob and Paul over and like the whole orgy thing that was going on. He read between the lines. He may have the mind of a six-year-old, but he knows what an orgy is. (laughs) And there's the title. Oh, man. Madman. Lori, he followed Linda over here. And, well, if you see him, just go right out to him and tell him to buzz off. Or if he's cute, ask him out. And he's got a one-track mind, obviously. Lori, Annie, I gotta go. You gonna pick me up? Annie, right after dinner. Hey, how about that ski sweater you got for Christmas? Lori, bye. Linda, bye, creep. Annie, see ya. Now, why didn't Lori let her borrow the sweater? That's kind of rude. Anyway, separate issue. Annie picks up the sleeve of a sweater on her bed and throws it back down and says, yuck. Back in the Strode house, Linda, where's the blouse? Lori, it's in my closet. Linda, I'll get it. Lori, promise me you won't rip it? Linda, I totally promise. And Linda heads up the stairs. And Lori says, after Linda's basically already gone, I totally don't believe you. Lori gets up, goes to the window by the front door, and looks out, and starts singing. Wish I had you all alone, just the two of us. I would hold you close to me, so close to me, just the two of us, so close to me. You know, a little extra words in there, but, you know, she's drawing him in. He's literally right outside the house, you know. He was just in Riddle's backyard. He was following Linda, I think, at the same time. He's magic. And she's like, yeah, it's just us. 
So of course he's going to kill Linda and kill Annie and kill every other person in Haddonfield and in Illinois and in the United States and in the world because Lori said, I wish I had you all alone. And if his little baby sister Cynthia wants it, his little baby sister Cynthia gets it. Because Michael is a good big brother. Note, Annie is going to pick up Lori after dinner. And in the previous scene, Annie said 6.30 and the Wallaces leave at 7. Michael has his mask already. He did not rob the Nichols hardware, but we will get more into that in minute 33. Murray Leader argues that the blouse borrowing scene, quote, reinforces the point that Lori is put upon by her friends as well as so socially repressed that she has not yet worn that dress. Uh, gotta interrupt the quote because it's not a dress, it's a blouse. Continuing the quote, but actually makes Annie and Linda a shade less sympathetic in the process. Yeah, that sounds about right. But to the minute at hand, we haven't even gotten into minute 29 yet. I mean, the editing might make this a lot shorter, but I'm at 22 minutes right now, and I'm not even talking about minute 29. Best episode ever. For the record, no, I haven't been drinking. It's the middle of the day. I'm just having a good day. I'm drinking some Monster. Second six, we cut to the exterior of Lori's house, dusk. This scene is split from the way it was written. In the film, Lori sits and waits, Annie picks her up, and just as Annie is handing Lori the joint, we cut to the cemetery. In the script, the cemetery scene comes first, and there is no awkward cutaway on the joint transfer. IMDb goof, due to daylight savings time, it would be dark. When Annie picks up Lori in 1978, clocks were turned back the last weekend in October, which was just a few days ago. This movie takes place on Tuesday night. In the script, camera begins on the trees that line the residential street, twisting and writhing in the dusk wind. I'll comment in many minutes in this movie how the script has wind happen a lot, but in practice, they only manage to get wind a couple times. Lori comes out of her house, she carries a tote bag with school books and knitting needles stuck inside and a large pumpkin. Note Lori's outfit, and something that cannot be contained to this minute-by-minute format. She has a closed sweater now over a conservative blouse, a couple buttons undone. Bell-bottom slacks, more working woman than schoolgirl. Later, at the Doyles, by minute 45 for sure, it seems like another button might be undone on the blouse, but still, she wears the sweater. Minute 52, she's got the sweater off but wears an apron over the blouse and slacks as she carves a jack-o'-lantern. Minute 56, still the apron, but there are definitely at least three buttons undone on that blouse. Minute 68, apron is gone, three buttons undone. Annie and Linda take off more clothes, but I think it's interesting that Lori's outfit gradually becomes less conservative with a brief foray into Homemaker. She also has what looks like a quilted coat. I do not think that we see that at all later. She's carrying it, not wearing it. She walks to the corner and sits on the concrete pillar. You know, classic shot. You go to the Strode house now. They have pumpkins out there so that you can go pose these photos yourself. In my notes, I say supposedly the owners do that. But I've actually, since writing these notes, been to the house, seen the pumpkin on the porch, seen the little pictures they have of Lori on the pillar. Another IMDb goof. Autumn leaves cascade down on Lori and rustle to the ground as she exits her house in expectation of Annie to pick her up. Why is this goof writer being poetic? 
The leaves cascade down, rustle to the ground. Stop it. As she sits at the corner watching children trick or treat, there are no leaves falling anywhere else in the neighborhood, not even to her immediate right side where the lawn and sidewalk are clean. I think I actually mentioned this in an earlier minute when we were talking about the leaves, back when I had, I think it was with Annie Nelson as a guest from Next Reel. We were talking about the leaves, and yeah, this is that scene where like there's leaves definitely in the Strode yard, and then it's like the production didn't have permission to put leaves in the next door neighbor's yard. Or we could just assume the next door neighbor is really good at raking, you know, keeping his stuff together, but the Strodes are too busy because the leaves stop. Either we assume in-universe it's because the person raked over there and already cleaned up, or in reality it's the production either didn't think that yard was going to quite be in the shot because they didn't know where the camera would be, or they just didn't have permission to put leaves over there. So yes, this IMDb goof, however oddly poetic, is correct. Lori turns her gaze down the street. The script... Lori's POV, trick-or-treaters, uh, more children in costumes walk from house to house, some with mothers and sisters, trick-or-treating. Weirdly specific, mothers and sisters. Maybe more sexism with the mothers and sisters, I guess, I don't know. The wind blows their costumes, building them out. More wind. Note, the trick-or-treaters to Lori's right are to the right of where she is sitting, across Fairview Avenue. Those costumes seem to be Superman, but maybe a homemade or really cheap Superman, a witch, and a devil. Also, walking away in the distance might be a repeat of the angel from Minute 27. The trick-or-treaters to the left are on North Genesee Avenue in Hollywood. Those costumes are blurry. There's a kid with a red cape, but not Superman, something white. Something that almost looks like a homemade robot or tin man. Probably the latter, because the next kid might be Scarecrow. And then there's something long and black. North Genesee is the same street where the interiors are for the TV scene earlier. And Loomis will be seen on the street when he's walking around Haddonfield later. We angle on Lori. A car approaches, and the minute ends. But in the novelization I've mentioned before, Lori is thinking about death a lot today. What touched her deeply, writes Curtis Richards here as Laurie looks at the trick-or-treaters, quote, was the realization that these children were free and safe to roam the streets unhindered, unworried by the bullies and muggers and purse snatchers that lay in wait in the shadows of New York or Chicago or the other big cities. There was no danger to the child who walked down the sundown streets of Haddonfield. At least not, Laurie pondered, from without. But from within? Was it not possible that among these dozens of gaily cavorting children there was one capable of a crime so heinous it made the gorge rise in your throat just to think about it? It would be ridiculous, laughable, had it not been so fifteen years ago this very night. They said he had on a clown costume, Lori said. It's weird, it says said instead of thought. Scanning the little revelers for a clown costume, she found four in the space of a minute. That one of them could produce a knife and ventilate her entrails was a thought far more horrifying than the thought of the same knife wielded by some city cutthroat from whom you at least expected it. Lori flashed for a second on Judith Myers and tried to put herself in Judy's place as the boy with the rosy cheeks and fawn eyes exposed the blade of his butcher knife and began to advance on her. It's a joke. You can stop now, Lori heard herself telling her own imaginary kid brother. The brother didn't stop. 
when he brought the blade up and then down the first time, just before the point penetrated your flesh, you knew something about evil that had been forgotten for centuries, maybe millennia. You knew in that instant that everything you had been brought up to believe, everything you had counted on for security, everything you took for granted as normal, all of it was a lie of such enormity that if you could live for another hundred years, let alone another five seconds, you could never fully grasp it. In that instant of frozen time between the downward thrust of the child's arm and the searing agony of his blade plunging hotly into your body, your mind took stock of everything that had meant comfort to you. The television set and the air conditioner, the late model car with 300 horsepower and rack and pinion steering and disc brakes, the refrigerator freezer that made ice cubes, the electric range that signaled you when your roast was ready, your gas heater that flicked on automatically when the temperature in your home dropped below 65 degrees, the happy house and loving parents and terrific teachers and great friends. You surveyed them all and they were lies, lies for when it came to shielding your belly from the crazed six-year-old's right hand. These comforts were as thin as the silk panties that shielded it now for all the protection they rendered. End quote. And Laurie is startled out of this reverie by kids saying trick-or-treat. But movie Laurie, despite having seen the shape a few times today, seems remarkably carefree. That is all for Minute 29. The Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk us on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute or Instagram, Michael Myers Minute, or join our Facebook listeners group, 45 Lemkin Lane. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a nice review if you like what you hear. Now, if you really like what you hear, you can help me out by donating through Patreon at patreon.com slash Myers Minute. Until next time. See you later. Bye.